All right, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space 1202 for the week of Monday, June 29th, 2020. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Reporting as ordered, sir. How you doing? Doing great. Uh, happy to have the gang back with us, because we're also joined by Mark Ratterman. Welcome, Mark. Hello, hello. And we're also joined by Cat Robinson. Welcome, Cat. Hey, glad to be back. Glad to have the gang back together. So we've got a lot to cover tonight, so we're going to dive right into it with the next major NASA launch. Because SpaceX has already been launching a whole bunch of Starlink satellites, GPS satellites. Uh, but the next major NASA mission will be the Mars 2020 rover launch, or as it's now known, Perseverance. And the Perseverance rover will now be launching on Wednesday, July 22nd, 2020. The original plan was Monday, July 20th, quite an appropriate date. Uh, however, we're now learning that because of a contamination concern in the ground support lines while they were processing the spacecraft, that it is now being pushed back by two days. And Gene, this isn't the first time it was pushed back either. No, it's not, Sawyer. They pushed it back initially to the 20th because of a, a ground, issue, ground support equipment issue at... Uh, uh, launch Complex 41 that uh, ULA is responsible for. So I'd rather have the spacecraft in good condition and the uh, the ground equipment ready to support launch than, you know, not go here. So uh, the word that you got was it in reference to the lander itself too, because I know the lander has to be you know, as clean as it possibly can be, because this is really, really a search for, uh, this is almost a search for life mission here. Right. The main thing is also they plan on recovering samples from the surface to later be picked up by another mission, of which to do that, they are bringing up multiple vials that they will fill some of with rocks and dirt and dust, and some of them they will intentionally leave empty. So that way they can test how contaminated or non-contaminated the vial was before the samples went into it, and then rule those out as they're testing whatever returns. But this one, the, they say that the spacecraft and vehicle remains healthy, according to a NASA blog post. Yeah, I believe that there's, in that uh, uh, container, I think there's like 32 uh, little vials, if you will, in in that particular container. That container that uh, you're talking about, Sawyer, I believe was the last thing they absolutely installed on on Perseverance. Uh, I will say, too, there's a few million names on board Perseverance. It's a small little uh, little, little microdot kind of thing. And they also went ahead and put a dedication to uh, our medical workers that are battling the, uh, the COVID-19 virus right now, too. So that was kind of a, a neat little, little tip of the hat to everybody that uh, is really, really hard at work trying to defeat this virus. Yep, uh, I'm pretty sure most of us have our names on that little chip that's scheduled to launch right now, July 22nd at 9.35 a.m. Eastern Time, 13.35 GMT, with a two-hour launch window. And keep in mind, this has to launch sometime within the month of July, possibly into early August, because if they do not launch within their three-week window, then you have to wait two more years for Mars to be in alignment again. So no pressure. Yeah, exactly, Sawyer. I believe uh, NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine was saying that it's going to cost like something like half a billion dollars to go ahead and store the darn thing during for, for the next uh, two years while the next la launch window comes up for Mars. 
the really cool thing about this particular mission, though, as you pointed out, is the sample return aspect. That in and itself is a really, really complex set. ESA's involved in that as well. Uh, I'm not going to go into all of the specifics, but if all goes well, we could have samples, actual samples from Mars, return back to Earth by 2031. It's going to be fantastic if that happens. Uh, this isn't the one that has the Mars helicopter on it, is it? Yes, it is. The Ingenuity helicopter. And it, too, I believe, has got a small little camera. It will not be delivering images in real time, but it will be sending back images from Mars. Yeah, so that's just kind of cool. And it is scheduled to touch down on Mars in Jezero Crater on my birthday, February 18th, 2021, if all goes according to plan. Happy birthday. What a nice present. Oh, that would be a heck of a present. Hopefully we get it to launch as well. So uh, fingers crossed for ULA and NASA on that. But in the meantime, speaking of NASA, we had two NASA astronauts out on a spacewalk this past Friday, June 26th. Uh, Chris Cassidy and Bob Bankin making their way outside the ISS on the first of a series of spacewalks to basically replace the batteries on the ISS with the same kind that are in your cell phone. Sort of. <laughs> in a way. <laughs> These uh, are uh, lithium-ion batteries. They're not. They're kind of like the ones in your cell phone, except they're a lot bigger. These batteries are replacing the uh, aging um, nickel-hydrogen batteries that were initially placed on the, the International Space Station. This set of batteries is, is located... Um, over on the S6 truss, believe we had another EVA by the um, on the uh, International Space Station quite recently last year uh, to go out and replace another set of uh, batteries. Uh, Christina Cook and Jessica Meir were the uh, two EVA astronauts on that. This particular spacewalk uh, to go ahead and replace these batteries um, went along swimmingly. I should go ahead and say too that. Uh, uh, replacing the, this, this, all of these these batteries. I believe there's. I'm looking at a graphic here right now that uh, that NASA put out. I believe there's three channels on the S6 truss they want to go ahead and replace. Um, and once these three channels are taken care of, uh, you're going to have uh, the International Space Station in a good power configuration. Uh, pretty much for the rest of its operational lifetime. So then through, that's probably through, what, about 2028, 2030, somewhere around there. This EVA went along like gangbusters. I mean, we were at the four-hour mark, and they had already completed all of the activities for the day that they had scheduled. So they were actually doing um, activities um, at that point to support the the next EVA, they could they could probably get this thing done in in smart order. When you're going out there and both of you have six EVAs under your belt, you know you can make it kind of look easy. Plus, uh, Chris Cassidy himself, I think, had a hand in writing the the procedures to install the batteries to begin with way back when they started this process. So they already had somebody that really knew what the devil they were doing and really, really understood the problem in front, in front of them. So uh, with him as uh, lead EVA officer, they had uh, 
they had uh, everything everything going and uh, everything clicked just fine hey just something to i'd like to mention if there's anybody listening to us talk about all the the details that went into the spacewalk if you haven't actually sat and watched nasa tv live during a spacewalk do it and kind of put yourself in a position of uh you know looking out the uh, helmet visor and imagine yourself doing what they're doing and I think you'll be really impressed with the intricacy of even the most the simplest things are not simple in that environment and it's worth uh, taking some time watch one and get a greater appreciation for what we're talking about Mark, I couldn't have said it any better. I mean, they actually have to have the tools tethered to the support lines and support panels on, on the International Space Station. There isn't, you know, I, I know people listening to us, they've worked on cars, they've worked on bicycles, they've worked on motorcycles, they've worked on the refrigerators, they've worked on anything. And when you put a tool down, you know, on it either goes back in the toolbox or it sits on the floor, so this way you can grab it and and you use it again. These guys, you know, you have to have everything tethered um, or it's going to float away. Uh, so it's, it, it's, it's really a weird, weird environment to work in. So where, you know, as, as we talked about offline, when we were talking about putting the show together, even there was a little bit of a, a little bit of an awkward incident that as uh, Chris Cassidy kind of got out um yeah, that's a little oops. Um, and by the way, in case you're wondering if it's difficult to imagine seeing it through their visor, it's really not because they have cameras on their helmets. So you can actually see what it looks like from their point of view as they're making their way, crawling glove over glove, attached to the bars, making their way across the station. It's amazing, which when you're doing that, it it's inevitable that you may bump your arm on something. And it turns out that... Uh, one of the crew members accidentally bumped their arm on their way out the airlock, and on their arms, on each arm left and right, is a mirror. Those mirrors are used so that they can check the systems on the life support pack on the front of their spacesuit. They're written backwards, so to read it, you hold your mirror out, and it's right side round. Uh, one of those kind of got knocked loose, and we have a new piece of really, 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 really tiny space junk that will likely burn up in the next few weeks right now. Yeah, Chris Cassidy kind of knocked off one of the uh, the mirrors on on his uh, on his suit. But again, sorry, as you pointed out, the the it wasn't one of these. Uh, it, a lot of media outlets made a big deal out of it. It really wasn't. Uh, it, it was something. It was not an impediment to any activity whatsoever. There was one media outlet, I believe, in Britain that really, really tried to make a big deal out of it. Really, and it really, really didn't impact the activity at all. Um, but Mark, indeed, you you make you make some really good points too. I mean, another point too. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna mention is with uh, we all wear gloves when we're dealing with auto care and so on and so forth. And sometimes we're wearing heavier than normal gloves to deal in certain areas and so on. And we know how difficult it is to go ahead and reach down and you know kind of grab things with our hands wearing those gloves. Now, uh, an interesting little experiment you want to do at home, grab one of these, you know, a, a glove that if you are in an environment um, that encounters snow in winter, grab that glove, put it on, try to pick up a, a quarter or something like that off your table wearing that glove. 
and um, I'll bet you it's darn near impossible. That's the kind of thing that the astronauts performing an EVA, and that goes for everybody. That's even the cosmonauts. They they they're going to have they have the same problem. So these this is the environment you're playing, and the the uh, the spacesuits or the extra vehicular mobility units. Oh, those old things. Yes, they're forty years old. They date right back <laughs> to the shuttle era. Um, the, there is an XEMU coming for uh, for Artemis, but it's still in development, and that XEMU will be will be tested uh, on on the uh, International Space Station, but. Uh, uh, those are really, really tiny spaceships that we essentially put on and envelop in, in them. And, you know, th- these guys, they make it look so easy, but gosh darn it, you're, you're outside and you've got nothing but some, some layers of thermal protection out there. And this is an environment that is literally trying to kill you. But, uh, you know, both, uh, uh, Cassidy and 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 Bankin made it look easy. Oh, oh yeah, and did we also mention that the gloves are pressurized and that you also then have to push against the pressure of the suit to bend your fingers? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's it's a tough environment to work in. Is is really where I'm getting at. But gosh darn, and that's it. what makes it even more impressive that uh, these two guys are able to finish basically all of their main tasks two hours ahead of time too. I will say too, as they were closing the EVA. Um, Two comments were made by both uh, Bob Bankin and uh, and Chris Cassidy. Um, as he was walking back in, Bankin gave a little bit of a shout out to Kirk Shireman, who Friday retired from from NASA. He was the ISS program manager, and um, Chris Cassidy gave a shout out to everybody that worked on the EVA. He said it takes a village to kind of put one of these things together. But, you know, he, he gave a shout out to the, you know, the training folks, to the folks supporting them on the ground during uh, this time of COVID and all that. But he also gave a shout out. And I thought this really said a lot about Chris Cassidy. He basically gave a shout out to all the custodial workers at the Johnson Space Flight Center. Specifically, also, he gave a particular attaboy to um, the folks working in Building 30. Uh, the custodial staff there, uh, because he felt that it was up to them to keep that area clean, sanitary, and so on, so that people like uh, you know the, the lead flight directors and all that that can continue to use the uh, the mission control center in this very very scary time of COVID nineteen, and really support the individuals that are supporting him. So I think that that really that really gave a a, a good insight into uh, who Chris Cassidy is. Um, I will say too uh, that uh, uh, because of uh, the uh, where where the work site was and so on, Bob Bankin too saw his uh, new ride over there, the uh, the Good Ship Endeavor, aka the Crew Dragon, and. Um, he said, "Yeah, I got to take a picture of this thing, because uh, I mean, the, the the angle we are at right now, it showed uh, uh, Crew Dragon and all of its splendor." And he said, "The the folks over at uh, Hawthorne would probably really, really appreciate it if I grabbed this." So he 
he grabbed a, a few shots of uh, of Endeavor as they were out there getting the, the EVA squared away, and I thought that was kind of cool. He actually posted those on Twitter. If anybody's following him, you can go ahead and grab those shots. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, they've got a beautiful vehicle there, and it, it's not just the fact that it's good-looking, and it's not just the fact that it got them there safely. It's the fact that it's working better than they originally expected, at least when it comes to the solar panels, because one of the biggest concerns was, how will it perform when it's once it's in space? Uh, will it be able to stay for its entire expected duration of at least four months? And they're going to, obviously, it's a test mission, so they're going to run it through its rigors and see how is it doing. And it sounds like uh, the solar panels are degrading slower than expected, which means better battery life, essentially. Yeah, that's correct, Sawyer. Um, during the uh, pre-EVA press conference, uh, NASA's uh, Steve Stitch and uh, Kenny Todd also indicated that, uh, uh, again, as you pointed out, Sawyer, that those uh, solar panels on the trunk of uh, Crew Dragon, and these are not, you know, usually when you see... Um, the solar panels are usually extended outward. These aren't. These are kind of embedded in and around the uh, um, the trunk of the uh, the spacecraft or the bottom of it. Um, they are were only expected to last about maybe 114 days, and now that was going to be the basically the limit of the mission. Uh, now they've been turning uh, Endeavor on um, as it's docked to. The International Space Station. They've been powering Endeavor up every, um, I believe it was every Wednesday. And when they powered power it up, they noticed that, hey, gosh darn it, we've got a little bit more juice than we actually thought. So that means that, as you said, the, uh, the panels are degrading a lot slowly, which basically gives them a lot more life on the spacecraft. I will say, though, that this these panels are not going to be the same ones on Crew-1. The ones on Crew-1 are going to be a little bit more hardened, if you will. But uh, uh, this bodes well for possibly extending the mission a little longer. There, there's a lot more confidence that they could probably get the mission out to you know the 114-day limit. Right now, the earliest time Endeavor could come home would be August 2nd. But they're not exactly too sure that's not going to be the drop-dead date. That's not written in stone by any means. They may push this a little longer and see how long the vehicle can can kind of hang in there. Uh, they are still testing Endeavor as the vehicle is docked to the International Space Station. Believe that day they did a what's called a habitability test. They got about four uh, crew into the into the uh, the cap capsule, and they tried to see you know how long you know is it comfortable in there for four people? Uh, could they you know do what they need to do without bumping into each other? That kind of thing. And uh, I'm not too sure how what the results were, but I'm sure that. Uh, you know, judging by the room in there, that they probably uh, are are just going through that with flying colors. I will point out too. It seems like every uh, conference that uh, both Bob Bankin and Doug Hurley do, from uh, 
you know, talking to the press. They did a, a, a segment with uh, CBS's Late Late Show. The two stars of the show right there with them are uh, good old Tremor and uh, good old that, that plush Earth that uh, got left by uh, by DM1. <laughs> So they're always kind of kind of uh, at the ready and always always ready to to get in some camera time, which I thought was kind of kind of cute. Yeah, if you missed that, uh, it's on the Late Late Show with James Corden YouTube channel as well, and it's uh, it's a great fun interview. And uh, the important thing with returning though is they could possibly do it by the end of July if it's a weather thing, but otherwise they're gonna push for August because the big thing with the splashdown is because this is a test it is in much tighter restrictions than other missions so in some instances the wind limits for a splashdown could be as low as nine knots that is not a lot of wind and that could very easily cause a delay so i think weather is going to be one of the other major deciding factors when it comes to splashing down and we are talking about splashing down off the coast of florida in the summertime near hurricane season <laughs> So you yeah. never know. We already know that weather's already had its say with this mission. So <laughs> Florida got a Florida. Yes. <laughs> this is very true. <gasps> we talk all the time about Florida man, Florida woman. We don't talk about Florida weather. It needs its own news story, its own Twitter account. Someone get on it. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you don't like the weather in Florida, wait 15 minutes. Uh, but... Uh... Yeah, and I only lived there a year, so I can't. Uh, you know, I'm I, I'm I'm still a novice when it comes to Florida weather. Now, I know SpaceX was saying that oh, we could probably fly Crew One as early as um, the end of August. That is not really likely if you come down, you know, like early August, and it takes six weeks to to sift through all the data that. Uh, the DM-2 spacecraft collected. My bet is probably the the earliest would be, I don't know, I'll say mid to late September, early October, before Crew-1 can probably uh, launch. But I think that's the least of our worries right now. Right now, I just want to get uh, DM-2 back home and um, uh, Bob Benkin and Doug Hurley uh, back home as well so we can go ahead and declare a successful mission. I'm going to still be biting my nails until uh, both uh, Hurley and Bankin are on the deck of the uh, recovery ship and, and safe. I think all of us are. And of course, once we have a new landing date or an official one, we will let you know. One other thing I will mention during the pre-EVA press conference, they did also talk about the status of Boeing and where they're at. And uh, Steve Stitch was saying that he had some very good conversations with Boeing. They, you know, they had some very good uh, details as far as what's going on, and and they're they're working really hard uh, to get to OFT two. Uh, so far, so good on on the target date. It looks like OFT two by the end of the year is doable. Uh, they're both. Uh, uh, NASA and uh, and Boeing are kind of maintaining that, you know, according to what they're seeing right now out of the company, Boeing looks like they can do a a year-end OFT-2 mission um, this December. So, 
you know, I'm not going to hold them to it. You know, things could kind of unravel. Who knows? But so far, they're, it looks like they're on track for OFT2 toward the end of this year. And we do want to mention that we will, of course, keep on top of all of this. And uh, there is a new person in NASA who's on top of all this as well. The new head of human space flight at NASA is Kathy Loiters. And if you feel like you've heard that name, you probably have before, right, Gene? Yeah, she was the um, former uh, lead of the commercial crew program. And I guess uh, uh, Jim Bridenstine and, and the rest of the uh, the folks over at NASA felt that uh, she did such a bang-up job on that that uh, she should be given the uh, the helm for the whole thing. And, and Kathy basically said uh, in the uh, teleconference where she was formally introduced, she basically said, the, I have really got some big shoes I have got to grow into very, very quickly. Kathy has a lot of respect out there. She's a, a, a grand engineer. Um, she got the commercial crew program, which was kind of an unwieldy thing to begin with, but she got it through and got it across the finish line. Uh, so far, so good. Knock on wood, and I'm tapping on my head here. Um Things look like they're going extraordinarily well for uh, for uh, DM2 or uh, the Endeavor mission. You know, again, she brings a, a ton of experience and a ton of respect to the office. And I think she's... I, I couldn't think of any better person for the job, really. Um, she's She's got a big portfolio to manage. It's not just going to be commercial crew this time. Well, that's going to be part of it. But she's really going to be the person on point that is going to literally got us to the moon and and on to mars so she's got a um as jim bridenstine said in the teleconference she said she's got a lot of homework to do a lot of things that she's got to you know get up to speed about they're going to give her a lot of time to get up to that uh, to that point and to to basically you know to drink from the fire hose, if you will. But I, I, in all in all, I think she's she's probably you know the the best call for uh, for the job right now, and I wish all the best. It's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of work going forward. Um, the the one of the things that uh, she did get challenged um, by, uh, and this was a a straight yes or no answer, and I don't know uh, was was by Keith Cowling over at uh, NASA Watch, he asked flat out during the press conference if she would commit to getting Artemis on the moon by 2024, December 31st, yes or no. And she said, well, it's really not a yes or no answer, but um, you can't, you know, you're never going to, you know, do it unless you go ahead and try to do it. And she said, we're going to do everything in our, our power that we can to go ahead and try to get our crew on the surface of the moon by December 31st, 2024. You really couldn't ask for much more on that. I mean, I know what, what Keith was trying to do over there, and you know, and I kind of appreciated it in, in some odd way. But you have to remember, too, the commercial crew program that is still ongoing the first human flight was 37 months behind schedule but that was not 
really the doing of you know anything that could be controlled. Certain things happened. We had the loss of the DM-1 spacecraft uh, that one Saturday just before Easter, and um, we had uh, you know so many other little gotchas happen along the way, and you need time to mitigate that. And also, Jane, one thing, you know, it's really hard to commit to program deadlines or something like Artemis uh, when there's an uncertainty of whether or not it's a program that will be carried on by the next administration. Um, this is a conversation that I know that we had several times in discussing um, uh, the return to human spaceflight, you know, with DM2, is that as different administrations take office, they have different priorities for space travel. Um, so it's, you know, and we can talk about this in length and another program when we have more policy focus. But one of the, the difficult things for NASA is the fact that it's on a year-to-year -year budget. Um, and so its its programs and aims can be really um, heavily influenced and affected by what the priorities of each administration are. Um, so that's why you saw, you know, something like uh, the cancellation of Constellation, um, how the journey of Mars has now shifted um, to Artemis. Um, so that's another thing that's, you know, I, I appreciate the difficulty in answering that question and the, the need for a diplomatic response because, you know, as a, as a civil servant, you know, some of those decisions are out of her hands. Yeah, I, and, and I believe, uh, Kat, she did say something along those lines too. She also indicated that as of right now, um, there is bipartisan support up on you know the cap up on Capitol Hill for all of this, but you know the winds of change could could ultimately impact Artemis. Yeah, and I agree. I, there's definitely you know in bipartisan support for this, but if you and Gene, I know you follow this. If you listen to um, the committees and the relevant committees mm -hmm. when they talk about this, there's a lot of skepticism for that 2024 date in Congress. Oh yeah. Representative uh, Jose Soriano here in New York um, is is basically saying that, that why why the rush? Let's let's stick to the 2028 date, and uh, you know that that too could have a, that could be a, a limiting factor. I'm not saying that you know it. I know um, Jim Bridenstine has tried to be as adept as he can to go ahead and try to insulate all of this from any political risk. But, you know, and, and the reason why you see a lot of these contracts coming out of NASA faster than, you know, the, the laser printers can print is, you know, because he wants to show that things are moving along, things are, are active, things are happening, and you don't want to slow the train down, but... And I don't think that, you know, this program, you know, whether it's Artemis or under some other name or whatever happens, um, whether, you know, whatever the result of the 2020 election is, um, we're going back to the moon. That's where the international community is headed. Um, it's the necessary proving ground for the next deep space exploration, you know, jump into Mars or to an asteroid or anything like that. Um, so whatever the name of the program is and whatever the date it happens, you know, we will return to the moon. Um, I think the timeline is just a big question about whether or not 2024 is actually feasible. But I'd rather see it happen in a, in a good way, in a safe way, in a, in a sustainable way and not 
you know, just basically the way we did uh, commercial commercial crew. And I think that's why, too, Kathy Loiters is probably the best person for the job right now. She understands that. The acceptable levels of risk in the 1960s and 70s are a lot different than our acceptable levels of risk today. Oh, thank you for saying that. I really, <laughs> I mean that sincerely, because that's exactly the case. Absolutely. And, and I mean, that's also why we're seeing delays. We've seen the delay in commercial crew by over two years. That's why Boeing is going to have to go ahead again with their second orbital flight test. It's people realize, thankfully, now that while deadlines are important, crew safety is even more important. Yeah. And just to I'm just going to put that out there and this this out there, too. Boeing is doing that um, that second mission. They're not charging the taxpayer for it. It's they're picking up the tab for it because I think they know they kind of that uh, they should have done better on OFT one. So they're not going to go ahead and and charge the taxpayer for OFT two. And I think that that's that that was probably the the best business decision they ever could have made in all this. Yeah, because Boeing is dealing with a few issues at the moment. First, you have the seven thirty seven Max. Now you have. OFT-1's issues, and on top of that, uh, in the recent bid to get the new lunar lander, Boeing lost out, although we're now learning that they may have had a little coaching along the way, which may have eventually led to Doug Lavero being forced to step down one week before the commercial crew launch. Gene, you may be able to help give a little more background on all the stuff going on with this, because it, it's been a wild ride since May of what happened, of why one of the heads of the program had to step down. Yeah, so this has been a rather interesting chessboard that we have in front of us, and I'll tell you, nope, I never would have thought in my wildest dreams that something like this would have happened, but lo and behold, here we are. Um, it looked like Lavero was was at least getting his sea legs a little bit and getting things, you know, together and and was trying to push forward with um, not only changes um, within the program, but he was also put, you know, trying to push forward, trying to streamline the um, uh, the human exploration office and and get it to a position where it could. Um, you know, support the uh, the activity that they have going forward. But um, the NASA IG is looking into some things, and it, it kind of led, unfortunately, to uh, Doug Lavero's resignation. Uh, and he wrote a, a, a note basically falling on his sword in front of the troops and basically said, look, it's nothing that you guys did. It's all on me. And I did something wrong, so I am, I'm, I'm departing. Uh, there was a lot of fog around his his departure. Uh, some people say he resigned. Some people say he was more like asked to resign. It's one of the things that that Jim Bridenstine really didn't want to talk about in the uh, teleconference, and justifiably so, because it is an ongoing investigation. Um, but the the whole deal is that Lavero may or may not have gone ahead and tried to coach Boeing a little bit in how to make their proposal a little better uh, so that it would 
shine a little bit more above the others in uh, writing up the requirements and maybe get have a better chance of selection selected um, the idea around it was that Lavero thought that Boeing's approach to the lunar lander was superior to really all of them and really wanted them to, to have a, a, a good shot at least at getting the award but you know what you can't prop up one individual or one individual company when you, you yourself are in a position to go ahead and, and either say yay or nay to their work. You may have a personal preference for that. You can state that, but you can't do anything behind the scenes that would go ahead and say, you know, hey, you know, do X, Y, and Z, and this, you, you know, you'll, you'll probably get, you know, a little bit more, uh, you'll have probably more eyes on this than you would otherwise. And that that's that's just wrong, especially when you're in the foray of, of, of trying to figure out which one of the, these these landers that are ultimately going to make the trip to the moon. And you, in other words, you can't tamper with, with with the process. And in a way, the NASA IG is looking into the possibility that Lavero may have tampered with the process. I'm kind of flummoxed because I'm I, I still don't understand why the devil somebody would try to go ahead and fix it. I think everybody should have had the chance to go ahead and say why their ideas are the best, but you don't go ahead and try to fix the process. And that's essentially what Lavero tried to do, or at least in, it's reputed that he tried to do, or, or should I say allegedly that's what he tried to do. I mean, the biggest thing, of course, is the just the timing of it was so bizarre that, of course, that's going to raise questions of was he forced out? Was he not forced out? You know, it's it was just such a bizarre situation. Yeah. It was handled strangely. And, of course, now the question was, was it related to oh, the OFT1 issue or is it something else? And now we know with the Lunar Lander selection, with Boeing not getting it, which first off is not going to be great for them business-wise— it's also not great realizing that they tried to, if this is true, tried to rig it in a way so that they had a better shot at getting the contract. Yeah, and, and you can't do that in, in plain English. And if that's what really happened, then the, the appropriate action was taken. And uh, I don't know if there's any legal action that has to be taken. And I think that's what uh, the NASA IG is, is looking into Exactly. And uh, by the way, in case you're wondering, IG is the inspector general. And uh, we will, of course, keep an eye out uh, for when that report comes out and we'll continue to update you with that. There are some other companies that did get a surprising new contract. And we're not talking orbital contracts. We are talking suborbital. And NASA, it sounds like, is going now for quick hop research. Yeah, so um, it, I'm looking at the um, press release that came out, but essentially uh, the suborbital crew office within NASA's commercial crew program is now ready to go ahead and put down the groundwork, if you will, to allow astronauts and researchers to fly along with their research on a lot of these suborbital vehicles that are starting to come out, like Virgin Galactic or New Shepard or something like that. So if um, you're a researcher or if you're a NASA astronaut and you've got a, 
a piece of hardware that you or or an experiment of some sort that you want to fly on either Virgin Galactic's uh, vessel or uh, the New Shepard that Blue Origin has. Once they start, you know, accepting uh, passengers, you will go ahead and. Uh, uh, be able to do that. There was a request for information that was put out uh, this week that uh, goes ahead and lays out what NASA wants. They want to set up uh, any kind of astronaut training program that you would need for either either vehicle, what uh, kind of qualifications or what kind of testing on any type of hardware that would be needed say you know okay fine you want to fly your experiment how does it apply to this vehicle you know can it can is it is it friendly to that vehicle that kind of thing but they're really trying to see also look into the possibility of flying any uh human tended microgravity research uh it's a it's a fascinating uh deal so it looks like commercial crew is not going to be just relegated to uh to orbital missions it looks like it's going to be suborbital Sawyer too you made an observation uh just before we went just before we had a convening of the uh the mines here about this RFI that it was originally put forward by a former NASA administrator and uh, never really got off the ground, but now Jim Bridenstine has kind of pulled it together. Yeah, Lori Garver made an interesting point on Twitter right after the announcement was made, basically saying that she had already proposed it, saying, uh, I had this approved seven years ago, but once I announced it, she says, quote, status quo astronauts got it overturned doesn't have to be just government employees research too. And she went on to say that uh, they primarily use the safety quote-unquote argument, saying, quote, I said policy change was to incentivize slash prime the pump and people wouldn't fly until vehicles were certified, etc. Back then, anything that wasn't developed, owned, and operated by the government, including the Russian government, was suspect. So I, I think now that we're in an era where you have SpaceX with commercial crew. You've got companies like Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin that are doing their own thing. It's about time that they also get some funding from NASA and allow for other research opportunities. Yeah, and I think this is going to open up the door, too, to not just NASA astronauts, not just NASA researchers, but this opens the door for everybody. If you come up with an experiment that you want to fly or, you know, through an NASA grant or something like that, and you could probably go ahead and, and give this a shot yourself. Um, if you're a postdoc or a, a, even a grad student uh, that wants to fly an experiment, uh, you can. So I think this is going to be opening up the door to a lot of things. This also, if I may be so bold, it's going to open up the door to a lot of the companies that are involved in this, I think, because uh, a lot of companies have been kind of tight-lipped in this area. And even Virgin Galactic, um, this past week, they, they had a flight test, and we did not hear about it um, during market hours, as, as, they, as they said, but they did go ahead and... and put in that you know we're not going to live tweet it or anything like that because of, you know during market hours but we will go ahead and put out a b-roll and all this if it's successful which virgin galactic did follow through and they did um but i just find it interesting in that they decided not to you know 
live tweeted or anything like that, Blue Origin does go ahead and um, use their their New Shepherd tests for, you know, dare I say, for infomercials uh, to try to go ahead and entice individuals to buy a ticket on board. But we don't hear a lot about the safety apparatus behind it. We don't hear a lot about you know some of the systems and so on. And I'm wondering too, Sawyer, if this this RFI is going to open up that door a little bit further and let us see under the lid of these things a little bit more to see how you know what safety precautions and what safety things that they do have available. Um, to uh, the crews that fly. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I mean, right now, the only real option that these people have is either you put something on a sounding rocket or you go on a zero-G flight, of which you're only getting it for 60 seconds at a time as opposed to a sustained 20, 30 minutes or however long the suborbital hop will be. So I think the research opportunities are going to be just as exciting as the astronaut opportunities for this. Yeah, and and... Not, by the way, this is not going to be putting the sounding rockets out of business because there is some research that you still need the sounding rockets for. The The sounding rockets, some of these payloads go way further than the International Space Station. Some of these have, uh, you know, altitudes of, you know, thousand, about a thousand miles up as opposed to the ISS, which is, you know, two, what, 250, 260 miles up. So... You know, you're not you're not putting wallops out of business. You are just enhancing what they do, and uh, I, I think that's a that's a great trade off. Exactly. So it'll be an interesting program. That uh, again, another thing we'll keep an eye on here. We've got a lot of stuff to watch now because it's getting exciting again. It's no longer just shuttle. It. I remember when we first started the show again it was like what are we going to do after shuttle ends and here we are talking about whole new things that we never would have even thought of 10 years ago five years ago the commercial crew program suborbital commercial hops who would have thought it's, it's fantastic i think the the real big deal is um how a lot of this commercialization is starting to change the picture if you will sawyer uh we're not, you know, NASA is not owning the spacecraft anymore. We we kind of, the, the, the U.S. taxpayer kind of leases this stuff and grabs the opportunities. And I think that's what the whole core of this really was, to go ahead and try to build an orbital economy and try to build it, you know, in such a way that it's sustainable over the years. And I think we're doing it finally. And I think this is the first step for, uh, you know, further commercial opportunities and also trying to keep the cost of, of space flight down. I'm not saying we're, you know, you and I are going to be able to go ahead and buy a ticket to the moon anytime soon. But, uh, you know, and, and I, I still don't anticipate that in my lifetime. But I still see it coming maybe next century. So, you know, hang in there. I think the door is open now for all of that to happen. And I think the other amazing thing right now is no matter what your interest is in space, there is something for you happening right now, whether it be lunar exploration, uh, extraplanetary exploration, low Earth orbit, you've got so many options. And the other cool thing is when you come to Talking Space, you get 
a broad swath of all of it. We try and incorporate as much of it as possible. But if you want more on one specific topic, there's a good chance that NASA actually has a podcast on it. Right, Mark? You bet. And, you know, it may seem odd to be listening to a podcast and to have someone refer to another podcast. But I got to tell you, I spend a fair amount of time on a road, or at least I used to up until uh, spring of this year. And now I find that I got more podcast material to listen to than I have time to actually do it. But if you have time for these shows, golly, you've got to have some variety. You've got to have the best of the best because sometimes uh, you listen to a show for a while it's like yeah I need something different okay well I'm going to give you something that goes beyond and this fascinates me in the technical sense this isn't information that I could ever come close to touching but NASA has a variety of podcasts and in the last few years they have really stepped up the bar raised the bar on the type material that they're covering one that I want to mention uh, right now is a program called Houston. We have a podcast, and it is by the folks at the Johnson Space Center. And their uh, kind of their headline on the on the show says, "If you're fascinated by the idea of humans traveling through space and you're curious about how it all works, you come to the right place." That is the official podcast of NASA JSC in Houston, Texas. Now, I want to tell you about a particular series that is, uh, I'm sorry, it's just got me excited again. It was a show, series of shows that I listened to uh, starting in April of 2019, and it's called The Heroes Behind the Heroes. It's a four-part series, and it's about the voices of the people who, hey, this is coming up on July in just another month, I think. And what happened in July, was it 1969? Well, this episode 88, 89, 90, and 91 are about the voices of people who saved a piece of American spaceflight history. They tell the tale of reviving an obsolete piece of audio equipment. Now, I relate to this audio equipment and obsolete because similar on a much, much smaller scale equipment I've worked with in the FAA. But it was, this was vital to digitizing the voices of the Apollo 11 flight controllers in Houston. And if you think about what are the clips that you usually hear, it's usually JFK's speech, it's the countdown of Apollo 11 and launch, it's the descent to the lunar surface, it's the first uh, spacewalk or moonwalk, it, it's those typical things. But this is a series that talks about how they revived from magnetic tape and came up with over 19,000 hours of digitized audio, which it was in analog form on tape. But they not only digitized it, but they have transcripts. And I just looked at something that they referred to in the podcast, and I'm not going to try and tell you about it, but holy cow you could get lost in it for hours if you just want to listen to live mission control audio from that Apollo 11 mission. Uh, this was started by a professor who studied speech processing and language technology and he wanted to move beyond a smartphone being able to understand or sometimes not understand simple questions. So this goes back to 2012 and he wanted to study language by a group of people interacting with one another on a common project or during an emergency. And so you listen to this, it's not just about 
uh, reviving uh, a piece of equipment to listen to these old tapes. It's not just about digitizing the old tapes. It's about challenge after challenge of what started out as a, a fairly straightforward in the mind of the researcher project for language technology and speech processing. And all of a sudden, it became something that I think today is vital to our, our history record of Apollo 11. So anyway, back to the podcast. Houston, we have a podcast. If you go to nasa.gov slash podcasts, you will see a whole list of many shows that they have. And Houston, we have a podcast is one of the ones that most interests me, and I hope you'll enjoy it. Uh, next time we meet, uh, hopefully I'll be able to come back on the show next time we get together. I'll tell you more about the little uh, the surprise gem that I found that was a result of the research in this four-part series of these audio recordings from Apollo 11. That is so cool. And again, uh, while we do a much more broad coverage of things, I don't think we ever would have thought to think of something like that. And it's so important and vital, too. So, Mark, thank you for uh, letting us know about that. It's different. It goes way down in the weeds of the challenges of going back in time to equipment that was in use 50 years ago that hadn't been touched for decades. And uh, I think you'll find it interesting, this particular part. But every episode is different. They're doing continuous things. They did something on life support recently where they're talking about life support in space. And it's just, a, to me, it's a fascinating deep dive on a lot of different topics that they bring. Thank you, NASA. Absolutely. And I should say that if anyone would understand about working with 50-year-old equipment on a daily basis, it would be you, Mark, who works for the FAA. Yeah. For me, something <laughs> new is uh, five, 10 years old. Most of what I deal with is 30, 35 years old. So probably feel safe that you're not flying right now, most people. <laughs> no, I'm joking. But... <laughs> well, you know, there are some places where I know some of the people that I'd be hesitant to live, to drive, to be under certain blocks of airspace. And, and I'm joking when I say that, too, because there's, I don't think there's a safer form of transport than uh, commercial aviation in particular. So uh, tongue-in-cheek, a lot of jokes. Yeah, sorry. I've been, I've been around too long. I had to make that joke. I'm sorry, Mark. But uh, that's why we love having you for the aviation side here as well, because in case you forgot, aeronautics is the first A in NASA. To wrap things up here tonight, uh, speaking of NASA again, the NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C. has a new name, and may I say, it is about darn time that this person gets some recognition. Kat, this one's all you. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this. So as you may have heard, NASA has renamed its headquarters in D.C. after Mary W. Jackson. Mary Jackson was NASA's first black female engineer and I know I speak for the whole show when I say we're happy to see Jackson's many accomplishments at and for the agency celebrated as we recognize the achievements of Black women in space. Uh, Jackson started at NASA's precursor agency in 1951 and remained as it was established in 1958. Uh, she was part of that uh, very storied. We've had lots of stories over the last several years with the uh, Hidden Figures book and then the subsequent movie. Um, so she was part of that segregated human computing group uh, before she was recruited to work on the supersonic pressure tunnel, work which eventually led to her promotion to an engineer 
after she completed training for which she was actually required to get special permission to attend as the classes were held in the segregated school. Uh, just thinking on sort of the many barriers she faced, it's amazing even to look back and see what she accomplished. Um, and then not just satisfied with her uh, professional achievements at the end of the 1970s, Jackson took a pay cut in order to work to promote the advancement of female and minorities in space. Uh, she died in 2005 and was honored with the Congressional Gold Medal along with some of the other hidden figures um, in 2019. Her daughter, Carolyn Lewis, had this to say about her mother. She was a scientist, a humanitarian, wife, mother, and a trailblazer who paved the way for thousands of others to succeed, not only at NASA, but throughout this nation. Uh, as I said before, I was thrilled when I heard this news, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity to share Mary Jackson's legacy with you, all of our listeners, and to celebrate her incredible life, her contributions to science, and her work in making space, in space, for Black, Indigenous, and people of color and women at NASA. So we were just excited to hear this news um, and really great to see the recognition uh, for a lot of that work uh, that was done uh, in the early stages of the NASA program, um, done by Black women in the, in the computing group that, you know, has just now um, come to light in the larger American culture. Of course, there's been uh, many fantastic figures to have been advocating uh, for recognition of these women for years. So, you know, hats off um, to all those women, especially Black women in space who have advocated for more recognition of uh, all the wonderful achievements um, of women in space and really fantastic to see HQ being renamed for Mary Jackson. And just a, a point, Kat, too, uh, I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and say this real, real fast. It's interesting, too, that she took a pay cut to go ahead and and try to further you know the whole stem point point of things because to me that that to me says this in her mind that was a bigger mission than what she was doing and you know to her the the, the money was immaterial it was the mission that mattered and I, I that that speaks volumes about her and her personality and where her her mind was and this is you know, something that, that women do just in general, you know, you can look at the research um, that women are, are willing to sort of to take the less glamorous jobs in order to promote other people. And I'm not saying that this isn't something that, you know, all people do, men, women, um, non-binary, all people do this, but it is something that, that women tend to take on. And Black women in general tend to take on a lot of this sort of jobs that require a lot more emotional labor in order to make it a more just and equitable world. So like shout out to all those people doing that invisible work um, that makes this world a better place to live in. Amen. Especially Amen. when they're taken, you know, especially when they're willing to take a pay cut, you know, at a time when they're already making less, you know, yeah. it really, it deserves a lot of recognition. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, it, it, to me, that just speaks volumes about her. And um, I, I only wish she could have been here to see this because I, I just ugh. I heard about that and I, I was just applauding. Uh, I, I couldn't think of an, any any better person to go ahead and, and be honored in such a way. And if you're like looking to for other women, you know, we we're always hearing, um, you know, it, it's not hard to, to throw a golf ball and, and hit a bunch of uh, white men in space. And again, nothing about that 
But if you were looking for um, more diversity in space, Mrs. Sensen, which NASA has worked on for a long time and really leads the way internationally for showcasing um, diversity in space. But also I'd like to give a shout out to um, Ashley Lindalia, who is at that underscore Astro underscore chick um, on Twitter. And if you check her out, she is always promoting people in astronomy. She does planetary science. She's pretty amazing. So if you're looking for a place to start, if you want to sort of diversify your feeds and get um, educated, if you're sort of, you know, used to hearing um, about all the Apollo astronauts and maybe haven't heard about, um, you know, some other great figures in history, um, I suggest starting with her. And there's a lot of that. Check out the... Um, you know, hashtag Black and STEM, Black and Astro, um, and just, you know, take this moment to, to recognize there's a lot of people who've been doing some invisible labor in the space industry uh, for years and, and learn some of those stories. It's sort of um, like Mark was saying, you get this time to really dig deep into these stories about restoring audio, where there's a lot of really great stories that you can dig deep in, uh, into and really find out more. And I'm, and I'm glad that uh, in this moment that we're in right now that we're getting to to dig deeper into that. I'm going to have to go ahead and add somebody to my follower list on Twitter, so thanks a lot, Kat. I think that's the perfect note to end this episode on, so I'd like to thank everyone who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thank you, Sawyer, and again, in, in the shout-out department, I want to give a, a shout-out to two things. One, um, NASA, ESA, and JAXA have developed a, a sort of satellite dashboard that is highlighting the impacts that the COVID-19 virus has had on on the Earth. We're um, Sawyer. Before we go, I'm going to go ahead and give you a, a link. We'll put it in the show notes. But um, indeed, this this thing has been really, really uh, beneficial in trying to go ahead and aggregate all of the data from ESA Sentinel satellites, from NASA satellites, and from JAXA satellites to go ahead and show a full picture of what um, the effects of the virus have had not only on um, the Earth as a whole, but also possibly on uh, e socioeconomic development as it's been going forward. So I'm uh, just going to go ahead and give a shout out on, on that one. And also a shout out to a friend of mine, Elizabeth Howell. She and a, another individual by the name of Nicholas Booth just published a book on the search for life on Mars, which is kind of interesting given the fact that we've been talking about perseverance a little bit. Um, the publisher is Simon & Schuster. I'm going to be digging into that this week. Fantastic. Thank you for joining us as well, Mark Ratterman. Hey, this has been good. I appreciate the uh, everybody taking their time, get together, and uh, look forward to future chats. There's so much to talk about. As you can see, based on the length of this episode, we can fill another hour plus again and still have more that we wanted to cover. And thank you so much for joining us as well, Kat Robinson. Uh, always a pleasure to be here. And, you know, if I'm going to leave a little breadcrumb trail, too, I'm going to encourage all of our listeners to Google um, Ed Dwight if you want a, an interesting hero, uh, an interesting story um, from a bygone era in space. But it was great to be here with you all and to be back uh, with the crew. So thank you. Absolutely. The only breadcrumb I can leave is to thank all of you for listening. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are, and wash your hands and wear a mask. Mm -hmm.